So just as you were all settling into the room there physically, you know, and the last one moves their place and there's a little sound and the general movement is towards more and more stillness in the room. You can probably sense that if you were listening. And I just remembered of being three, three or four in a playgroup and they used to sit us there and then say, wait until you can hear a pin drop. And just remembering, reflecting that at the time, that meant absolutely nothing. <laughs> that was a sort of vague, peculiar thing adults might say that want you to be quiet. But I wonder if for you now, all of you, some of you, most of you, or at least if not now, then at some point on the retreat or in the course of your practice, that actually makes sense to you what it is to hear a pin drop that the stillness and the silence and one's sensitivity to that is such that one is open and receptive to the slightest movement, the slightest sound. And in that sensitivity, it's not only the sound that is revealed. In that sensitivity to that listening, sometimes we can start to hear the silence. To hear, we could say, that in which all the sound is arising and passing. Tonight I want to reflect on a little bit about intimacy and stillness. Silence. And I'll start with intimacy. So intimacy can be a very fraught topic for most human beings, somewhere along the line. We can go through periods of loving it or craving it, wanting it, thinking it's the answer. Intimacy particularly with another in our kind of romantic um, idea around it. And then we can swing to the other side of that doesn't work. I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, let's do a path of detachment. That sounds much better, much less messy. And we can sort of swing around these two poles. Sometimes we believe the conventional view that intimacy means getting close to another and that we equate it with um, either physical intimacy or contact, having lots of contact with lots of people Mm -hmm. or um, whatever way we can sort of imagine that. But I think I would imagine most of the people in most of us in this room would would know the experience that all the contact in the world with others doesn't necessarily give us the intimacy that we seek. Probably everyone's had the experience of, uh, you know, being at a party and everyone looks like they're having a good time, and that's the kind of view of things. 
and yet inside one feels perhaps isolated or very alone, even more alone. It's kind of highlighted one's sort of isolation or separation. And often people tend to think it's just them that feel that. But it's not uncommon. So then we can sort of throw the idea of intimacy away, like, oh, it's a sort of myth, it doesn't work, there is no such thing. We're drawn to a path of detachment, perhaps, that isn't asking us, that isn't the conventional consensus view that we have to have the right relationship or be very good at being social or whatever it might be. And then we can go to the other side to believe that intimacy is irrelevant to our spiritual practice. And we sort of put our heart away and think, okay, so I'll just make the best of being this kind of separate separate one over here. Get used to the um, get used to that loneliness. And what we can find then is that things can become very dry. We lose the juice. And there can be a sort of trade. Well, I bet I'd rather not have that complexity of all that kind of confusing intimacy, but at least I'm kind of a little safer and more detached over here. Hopefully what we can start to find, if we fall into either of those two extremes of believing it's all out there in that relationship, or there isn't such a thing and I'll just make do with kind of being cold and aloof for the rest of my life. Hopefully in practice we can start to understand actually not a detachment but a non-attachment. A non-attachment, not a detachment that is aloof and cold and lofty but a non-attachment that is very intimate, very, very intimate with this moment, with this life, with this breath, with this body. And that perhaps what that part of it, that us that is longing for that intimacy can start to recognize that which we seek is closer to us than our very breath. So intimate that it doesn't even make sense to say we have to draw close. Because drawing close implies already that there's two things that have to draw close that this intimacy is immediate, without mediation, without something in between. Maybe you've had moments of intimacy here this week with a breath, with your body, with your foot on the earth outside. I don't know if the cows have been around much on the fields over there. Sometimes people go for walks at lunchtime. One man on retreat, not this time, he said that, you know, he, he could really see there was enough stillness, enough sensitivity in his being after a number of days, of course, on retreat, doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily ac- accessible to us in the beginning. 
there was enough stillness and sensitivity that when he walked through the field with the cows in over there, he felt himself drawn to kind of sit near them. And he was a, a city man. It was a bit of a surprise to him. I was like, hey, what am I doing here with these cows? You know, Found himself drawn to sit with them. Then started to sense the intimations that what was um, the same about him and the cow was much more uh, real than what was different about him and the cow. So there's something that we can recognize that is this thread that runs through all things. Again, that was a bit of a surprise to him. And next surprise to him was that the cow, one of the cows came over and licked him (laughs) on his face. So his, uh, some of his city identity kind of got sloughed off and he, for that time, became a country lad. (coughs) And there's something very intimate about the encounters we can have when we're in touch with the stillness. It doesn't mean we're always in touch with stillness or silence, but as the being um, tastes the quietitude, these moments can become more available to us. It doesn't have to be a cow. It can be the perception, the sight of the grass outside in the morning, the cobwebs with the dew. It can be the inner experience, the intimacy with our own ebbs and flows and movements the opening and closing of the heart and mind, the rising and falling of the breath. This intimacy of with no mediation, where there really is no gap that we have to close. Sometimes there's the sense that the gap has to close. You know, sometimes you... I I remember my mum a couple of times saying something like, I love you so much I could eat you. Right? And at the time, you know, being... And you see that sometimes with parents and children or maybe you and your children or with your animals, your pets or something that you really love, right? And then from the other side, I remember kind of perceiving her enthusiasm. But it also kind of was lacking a little wisdom there. The eating part, I wasn't so sure about. <laughs> it was like... You know, I I could tell it was, you know, there was love in it, but I'm not sure about the wisdom, right? That in in reflection, I think what she meant, when I've experienced that for myself, you know, with beloved things, is that the appearance is that we're separate, right? And I can't bear that. I can't bear that, so I want that separation to end. And her way of imagining that was to eat me. Right, that's one way of doing it, but that probably wouldn't have really done it for either of us. Right? <coughs> so the, immediacy, the intimacy and the immediacy that is not about having to have the appearance of the gap, which is kind of how it looks, right? It looks like there's me here and you there. 
that we have to kind of close that gap by effort, by coming, by doing something in particular. <laughs> We never actually question the gap, whether the gap is real, the, the way it appears, the gap of two-ness is real. There's an instruction from the Buddha, where he's talking about working with our perception, and he says, to practice in this way, in the seeing, so the contact with our eyes, in the seeing, just the seeing. In the hearing, just the hearing. In the cognizing, just the cognizing. So one day I went out to practice that. Not exactly knowing what it means, sounds a little obscure. But there was, you know, after a few days of the retreat, enough stillness to sort of get an idea that there might be something to pay attention to there. So I went outside, looked at a tree, remembered the instruction in the seeing, just the seeing. And for a flicker, felt like a little taste of freedom. For a, for a flicker, it felt like I didn't exist as something separate and there was just this tree and the knowing of that the seeing of that no gap very intimate very beautiful gone in an instant with the phrase in the mind well that's very good but what's in it for me mm-hmm. right so some recognition that there's something in that stilling the stilling of that sense of separation that is profound and real to us in a moment of intimacy, but we're not always comfortable with that. And I want to look a little bit at the um, sort of fear and ambivalence around the stillness. Stillness I'm using here (coughs) as part of the necessary condition, we could say, or platform for being able to to deepen, to perceive things in new ways. It's another poem that I remember, and I can't remember all of it. I can remember the the last part of a practitioner describing kind of going out into nature and sitting with the mountain. And he said, We sit here, the mountain and I, till only the mountain remains. And when I used to hear that in the beginning of practice, I was horrified. I was kind of like, What? You know... There's something in us that may be drawn to the to the profundity of it, but there's also often a kind of an ambivalence. It's like, well, what about me? You know, what about me in the mountain? Can't we do it that way? Or, you know. So one of the fears I think that is common is that as we 
open and deepen to the stillness is that we'll disappear. We'll disappear that all that is known to us will not be there for us. We'll be kind of rendered obsolete through this encounter with the stilling and the deepening. Or that we'll kind of, yeah, disappear, die in that. There was another story I used to hear, again in the beginning of the pra- in the beginning of practice, and there was a kind of an ambivalence, both a drawing towards it, but also a kind of like, oh, I don't think I'm not sure about that. Don't quite know how that's going to go. And it's the story of the salt child. There was a child made all of salt who very much wanted to know where she had come from. So she set out on a long journey and travelled to many lands in pursuit of this understanding. Finally, she came to the shore of the great ocean. How marvellous, she cried, and stuck one foot in the water. The ocean beckoned her in further, saying, If you wish to know who you are, do not be afraid. The salt child walked further and further into the water, dissolving with each step and at the end exclaimed, Ah, now I know who I am. What happens when you hear that? (laughs) Good news, bad news, like it, (laughs) like it. Right? Because the mind can't conceive of dissolving. The mind conceives in two, two two-nesses. conceives of me in the stillness and then if that's the stillness and I dissolve what's going to happen to me right and you may be drawn there may be something in this that really hears the the truth of that story sort of the kind of archetypal spiritual journey we could say something in this that longs for that that loves that that is drawn to that but there's that kind of yeah but Okay, I'll dissolve once I know how it's going to look once I've dissolved. So that's another issue that arises in the stillness is the not knowing. It's part of the trade, trade-off, we could say. I don't know anyone who can work it the way that our kind of personality would like to work it, which would be, okay, I'll let go once I've seen what it looks like when I've let go. Right? So there is a th- very, very often sort of threshold of being willing to not know and to start to become a little bit more comfortable with not knowing, not being able to define and concretize all of our experience. <clears throat> and that, yeah, re- requires courage and the deepening of our faith and, you know, can happen as we practice. Our need to have answers... Our need to have the answers can really stand in the way of our deepening into that stillness and silence. One teacher, Ujotika, says, The pride of having an answer has caused my blindness. Right? Having an answer, the way that we spin around in our mental proliferation to try and get the answer, even the spiritual answer. And that that becomes a process divorced from the actual immediacy of the contact of just this moment. Just this. Just this. Yeah, this much is possible. 
this much as possible, just this. So the fear that we'll kind of disappear and die, in a sense, has a, has a certain truth to it, but it's not how our mind conceives of it. What disappears and dies is the old, is the limited, is the shell of who we've taken ourselves to be. This one is from Rumi. It's called Quietness. Inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side. Die. And be quiet. Quietness is the sure sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. Sometimes we're ambivalent about the stillness because stillness may, we may think of it as uh, a false kind of stillness. Stillness that we've maybe known when we've become still because we've frozen with fear. You know, someone said, shut up, be quiet, and we've kind of become really still. But it's like the life is squeezed, the life is uh, um, frozen. And we confuse that with a natural stilling where things do cease to be agitating. And we think, I don't want that stillness. It's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's got, not going to have any life in it. But actually the, the stillness as mental proliferation ceases, the stillness that we can touch has much more life in it. It's a, it's a real life. Life can start to move, but it's just not the old life. Sometimes we don't place a lot of value on the stillness. Probably most of you do, by the fact that you come to a retreat that has a lot of emphasis on stillness. But you might also see the places where it's not valued. And one of my teachers makes a comment that sometimes... People are even in, kind of in contact with, sil- uh, with stillness or silence, but they think, so what? That's not going to solve my issues. That's not going to do it for me. Right? It's kind of overlooked. It isn't really, it's not really registering as something of value that has a part to play <coughs> in our deepening and freedom. How often have you sat and touched a moment of stillness but then the mind, of course, a part of us really values it, but the mind comes in saying, yeah, yeah, but I just have to, you know, plan where I'm going to put my bathroom tiles when I get back or whatever it is. You know, the stillness isn't going to help me do that, is it? Right? Or we fear that it means we're not going to be so functional. And again, there may be a memory of, you know, being a little kid who has contact with perhaps some of the stiller, more silent aspects of mind. 
and someone says, you know, what's nine times seven? And you're kind of not coming up with the immediate answer and someone thinks you're stupid for being still and not immediately providing what they want. And it's very common that it's really the, 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 the habit and the fear to fight the stillness and the silence and the space, just that, that sense of where it is, it, it, in a way, as we, as we sense the stillness, it is, we do get the intimations of the salt child, if you like, of that, the dissolving. And the old habit is to fight that because we don't know that we can trust that letting go yet. So there's kind of fear and ambivalence sometimes, but all I would um, probably probably be true to say that all of you are also very drawn to the stillness. We wouldn't be here. That there's something about the idea of disappearing actually that you like and the disappearing I'm talking about here is not when we wish to disappear because we hate ourselves. right that's something different and if that's there we'll we'll kind of run into that along the path that would be something that we'd have to work with the deeper longing to rest, to dissolve, to disappear, to really to be able to exclaim as the salt child exclaimed, to know what and who we are. Then there's one more thing that come in can come in, spiritual practitioners. We think, conceive then, that that's going to be a long way off. A long, long way off. God, that, you know, that's going to be once I've perfected my ten paramis, you know, cultivated all my Brahma-viharas, um, become an expert at gratitude, you know, that means, you know, judging from the list that Catherine read last night, that's at least another 15 New Year's retreats I have to come on to, you know, cultivate all these qualities and let go of this and this and this and this and this. And, and I'm going to have to be a bit more fixed and a bit more spiritual before I can really know what that, what, again, yeah, know the intimations of that, of what that deeper longing calls us to. But that may be another smokescreen, another way of ejecting ourselves, constantly ejecting ourselves from what is available to us here and now. We have ideas of how we have to look before we're worthy or suitable or to really know this. So just in the last part of the talk, I want to invite you to really listen to your 
that in you which really is drawn to stillness, really is drawn to the way that that sort of separate sense of ourself can dissolve, can start to soften, can start to rest back. That this stillness has the power to let agitation cease. Agitation of our mind, agitation of our heart, without us having to do that. And this stillness that is right here and now, it's not anywhere else, is vividly alive. It's not a frozen stillness or a constriction. It's vividly alive. Let yourself listen to hear a pin drop. So when I say these kind of things, it's, it's almost like it's sort of poetic in a way. It's not necessarily something conceivable in the normal way we're used to always describing experience through conception. What happens right now if you just listen? You breathe, you take your seat, open your ears to just listen. Poised, really poised, right there at the threshold where you're not leaning in, waiting to hear something, but you're not leaning back, kind of resisting any sound that comes. You're just poised, open, not knowing, and breathing. And in this hearing, just the hearing. one Zen nun. Again, it's still using this, in a sense, the ears, the ear door, as a way into just getting a taste of what's beyond the obvious experience. She said, 66 times these eyes have beheld the changing scenes of autumn. I've said enough about moonlight. Ask me no more. Only listen to the voice of pines and cedars in a forest 
where no wind stirs. Just listen to the voice of pines and cedars in a forest where no wind stirs. Just notice what happens when you hear her instruction. How do you listen to pines and cedars in a forest where no wind stirs? And keep breathing. It's not something you have to find here. It's something that's more obvious than anything you could find. What has this got to do with intimacy? If we bring our heart with us in this exploration of what it is to know, what it is to rest in the knowing without mediation between me and the objects of experience, but to rest in this knowing, we bring our heart to this our love of deepening, our love of the stillness and the silence, then it has everything to do with intimacy. This is taken from um, the last entry from Raymond Carver's book, which he wrote while he was dying of cancer. And this is the very last entry before he could write, uh, while he could still write. It says, And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, so feel myself beloved on the earth. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. So feel myself beloved on this earth. So just notice what's happening for you now if it makes any sense this pointing to the stillness if something can hear the whisper or maybe it's very very clear and very vivid for you this immediacy maybe just like a little whisper there's something you can that's sort of intimated in this silence and stillness that is hmm, kind of knowable kind of touchable tasteable feelable or if your mind's going what what kind of racing around in little circles 
either kind of rejecting the possibility or feeling like I'll never get that or just seeing if you can see that too, the way the mind's racing around desperately trying to understand something. Give that lots of room. Breathe with that. That too does not disturb the stillness. So one of the beautiful things about retreat is that we can become more sensitive to the, the deeper intimations of experience and beyond. That when we're in our normal life, for many of us, we can lose contact with that which really draws us, that whisper of possibility. And on a, at a time like this on a retreat of seven days, you know, we, you've had five full days of practice, put in a lot of effort, a lot of consistency, of steadfastness, of patience, of mindfulness, of just by still being here. There's a lot of qualities. Investigation. willingness, sensitivity, sitting with you in the groups and the one-to-ones. It's that human um, love and courage and openness that it's really a privilege to be with. So there's a lot of resource here already. And tonight really is a precious night for letting yourself taste the fruits of that sensitivity. Listening to the silence, going outside into the night sky. Just listening, just seeing. Letting yourself be drawn, if you are drawn. Feel the draw and be drawn. To come closer to that which draws you closer. So sometimes we do experience it as a two-ness. Of there's me and there's the truth or the depth or the silence. And I'm drawn closer. Sometimes people find themselves drawn back into the meditation hall when there's no sitting scheduled. Right? If that seems like a very far-off possibility for you, that's fine. But are we open to that happening sometime where we might feel ourselves drawn to the stillness and the silence? Even coming back in just for ten minutes when nobody's requiring you to be there can make a very big impression on us of starting to go deeper and deeper.
finish with the Rumi poem again. Inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side, become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall, escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into colour. Do it now. You're covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side, die, and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. Let's continue to just be where we are for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.